0: Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped.
1: Hello, hello. It is time for Story Shape once again. We are back for season two and we just want to say big, before we begin, a big word of thanks to everybody who tuned in for season one, everybody who downloaded, who liked, who rated, who reviewed and who listened. Uh, We were blown away by the support and by the the happiness that we seem to bring to our listeners. And thank you all so much. It was a joy for Susan and I. But it was great also to know that we were bringing delight and happiness to uh, so many people. Um, through the through the podcast um it's wonderful to have a place to I suppose to enthuse about my uh you know about our our shared sort of obsession with children's books and it's wonderful to have a person as knowledgeable and wonderful as Susan to talk to you about them um, but also all of our guests were were amazing and we were so honored by all the people who took the time to come to talk to us um during season one and we have some stonkingly brilliant guests coming up in season two Can't i'm wait to so tell you all excited about
0: them. <laughs> we're not going to tell you who they are now but you no. will find out as
1: as the as we are, the weeks progress to tease you instead we're going to just say we have some fantastic people lined up um and we are grateful to each and every one of them for giving their time um and expertise to talk to us about the books that shape them the stories that shape them and the books that they love and the books that they've written themselves um but in i suppose time-honoured fashion can we say time-honoured even though we're on I think two? we can yeah we're we are yeah. a tradition now Sinead <laughs> uh, we are going to begin this season with a deep dive and before we started recording Susan said to me it's like her whole life has been waiting for this moment and I I heartily heartily agree with that. yeah
0: I think like more than any other book this book shaped me and it's a book I said this in, in a, a text last night Sinead because we (laughs) we can't stop talking to each other about books um but this book this is the book that I would bring to a desert island I will never ever ever get sick of this book it gives me so much joy and happiness and wisdom and it's so deep and beautiful and magical and warm like I can't I can't love it enough and I can't yeah. wait. Like I, I hope I'm going to be able to talk about this coherently because it's just <laughs> one of those things that's like it's 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 part of my body. It's part of my soul. It's part of my. It's part of who I am.
1: Isn't it amazing to have to have such a wonderful like. Books are incredible that somebody could write a book and even though we we will never be able to tell the author of this book how much it meant to us like the fact that it has built both susan and i you know and, and i'm sure thousands of other anybody else who's read the book i'm sure would feel the same way about it you know that it has literally soaked into our dna and, and made us you know par- helped to make us the people we are today and kind of partly partly built us into the people we are today And that that's how significant this book is to me um i i just i treasure i treasure this story um but maybe, do you want to tell the people who what it is, or shall we give a yeah. synopsis first? Or what should, what should we do, Susan? Oh, let's
0: let's because te- I've never, first of all, I've never met anyone else who's read this book until we started talking about it. It's like, I didn't I ever realise. actually,
1: I never thought of that before, but you're it's probably true. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody else about this book either, besides you. So, it's amazing that we are doing it together on a podcast. I know, and then <laughs> and I, think, I think it was Sive Devlin mentioned it as well. Yeah, one her. of our guests in season one mentioned it as well. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. so yeah, I'm like. I'm beyond excited to talk about it because I've never spoken to anyone <laughs> about this book. But the book is—I you know you're all dying, dying to find out—it is. I'm holding up my very worn, tattered, and loved copy. Sinead is t- the same t- one, but says much more pristine. It's, um, it's *The Hounds of the Morrigan* by Pat O'Shea, and O'Shea. the edition that we both yeah. have is a puffin one puffin from. from- Published in association with Oxford University Press because I think that's super much first.
1: No, Puff, uh, uh, yeah, OUP is 85. This is 87. 87. That's probably 87 when I read this. Well, I know exactly when I read it because in the beginning of my novel, I have written in Irish, in old Irish oh, script, bless. because that's how much of a nerd I was. <laughs> um, I've <have> written Canig <laughs> Máyádi on laurishindom ishupamora in galiv on car nor around ar er ar leantasira lunasa and they and that means for anyone who doesn't speak Irish, that means my daddy bought me this book in a big shop in Galway, the city in brackets. <laughs> when, when we were there on our holidays in August of nineteen ninety two, uh, and I put my my name as well in Irish and in the in the old Irish script because you see it Can sometimes. I see. In this show book. me. Show me. You want to see it? I put yes, a picture. Yes, I Ah, uh, look. Oh, you're so cute, Jade. <laughs> I know, wasn't I? <laughs> so I was a bit. I was a bit older than you, maybe when I read for the first time. But I will never ever forget meeting this book. It was just, oh my god! I don't know. It was. It was. Yeah, definitely. It's. It's. You know the way. you, ha- you have books that kind of are just s- structural support poles mm-hmm. in your life. That's a nice way. This. This is definitely one of mine. Yeah. If Do... this was taken away, I would collapse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too, Do we want to? a summary of it first or yeah I, I think, think. We, give a summary and then I think we should both talk about like our first memories of reading it
1: okay well I can do that do you want me to do that yeah do yeah okay well I'll begin by with a quote that I came across when I was uh sort of doing a bit of research for the episode and it was written by the, the wonderful critic Imogen Russell Williams in 2017 She wrote of this book, it's a bravura feat of writing. It's impossibly delicate balance of surreal humour and evoked beauty, knowledge, fearfulness, joy and courage have never been bettered. And I agree with that 100%. percent Shea, the author, was born in 1931 in Galway and she was the youngest of five children. She moved to England at 16 and stayed there. She worked in the theatre for most of her career. And began work on the hounds of the morrigan in the early 1970s but it wasn't published until the mid 1980s so it took like 15 years or so to 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 write this book and you can tell because the the level of detail in it is so astounding um but sadly she became ill before the book became a success really and she didn't live to complete the sequel that she had planned for it which i always yeah, thought that was, breaks my heart was so sad it really breaks my heart as well um but the story the hounds of the morrigan is the story of a boy named pidge who extreme one extremely hot summer day in Galway City. Uh, finds himself wandering into a used bookshop and coming across what he sees, what seems to be a pile of pages, you know, hardly a book at all. Um, and a thin finger of sunlight kind of leads Pidge to this book, and he feels called to take it with him. And he meets a strange bookseller who appears to encourage him to take it home. And this guy sort of just pops up behind the till and speaks aimlessly, you know, like, a bit like Malabron in <laughs> Um, you know, encouraging Pidge to take the book home. So he feels like he hasn't robbed it um and so he does um and later that evening he's looking through the book and a loose leaf falls out and he hears a voice telling him to imprison it in iron and so begins a story that sees Pidge and his incorrigible determined absolutely brilliant little sister Bridget, Best character in the uh, world best character ever written um and a cast of characters that's you know they're so vast that if I were to try and name them all we'd be here till next week you mm-hmm. know as they journey kind of you know from their own worlds you know from their, the Galway of their own world into another world entirely kind of in and out you know very, you know, in a very porous way um, in an attempt to stop the Morrigan, the great queen, uh, the triple aspect goddess of Irish mythology, using the power of the evil magic that Pidge has unwittingly disturbed to do great harm. Because the page that he has found has imprisoned the spirit of great evil called Ulkgloss, which has been kept under control for many years by the power of St. Patrick. Um, the loose page is actually two pages, which had once been stuck together and are now coming apart. Um, and the blessing of Patrick was on one of the pages, and now it is uh, coming away from the from the cursed page, I guess. So uh, the the power is 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 you know kind of emerging. Um, so Pidge puts the page uh, you know in iron as much as he can, um, and then later in the story he is made a little box to put it in by. Uh, Tom Cusack the farrier the blacksmith again a smith being very important in the story Um, and he also makes British a tiny bow and arrow (laughs) which becomes very important later in the story and from him they learn about iron's magical properties and how iron can keep this magic you know under control but the book like that's only a a very vague very Mm -hmm. basic sort of beginning of the story I mean the story goes on to such incredible depths like in my notes, when I was kind of trying to prepare for this podcast, I thought to myself, it's a bit like fractal, you know, not that, not that, the, not that it's the same, the deeper you go, but like the closer you get to the story, or the, the more, the more deeply you read it, the more detail appears, you know, it just, it's, it's like the most incredibly rich tapestry of a book. You know, I've never read anything like it before. No, and I think like, and I think I love that description of it as fractal
0: and you're absolutely right. And like, like every small, like even the tiniest detail has meaning and has a purpose in the novel like there is like it's quite a big novel it's like how many yeah pages actually it is it's like it's,
1: you're 500 pages now. yeah 465 yeah, 460,
0: yeah and there's nothing wasted like there is nothing, nothing not, not a, a word wasted. Cut out. like yeah. it is so beautifully plotted like i, I don't it, like it's 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 a work of genius i don't know how she did it like everything everything has a function And the pace never lets up either. And the characters, each, like, as you say, there's so many different characters in this novel. There's a huge, huge cast of characters, but each one is so brilliantly drawn and each one is so distinct and alive. That. The whole the whole book is just like rimming with, I was going to say reality it like it feels like a wor- like it feels like a real world it feels like a world you could step into when i was a child it was like i was I yearned, totally yearned <laughs> yeah, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. In, in the world of the House of the market and, and i'm like when i realized much much later in life like i think only in the last few years that there was the beginnings of a sequel um i don't actually know how to deal with that
1: <laughs> yeah so i never never got to read it
0: in another yeah. way it's just a perfect like jewel of a book so maybe we don't need the sequel because it's just perfect in itself
1: I think so um I suppose it took Pat O'Shea a long time to write this book and I believe you know it was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten or that she would write and rewrite and rewrite scenes over and over again and I think you can really you can see that work you know you can you can not not that you can see it that, it, that the book seems labored no, it's, it's an no. effortless read but like from when you're an author yourself you, you know the the depth of the depth as you say the depth of detail and how everything has a relevance you know how you know no matter the tiniest details mentioned at the start of the book and it becomes really important later on you know that that takes work mm-hmm. you know that it takes preparation you know that it takes rewriting as opposed to writing <laughs> you know so i can really appreciate the the amount of effort that Padish I put into writing this book and I, I guess I, I sometimes I wonder too did her background in drama give mm. her the, the the sort of the extra skills she needed to sort of you know because her dialogue and her characters are so real and so as you say they leap off the page it's you so know, wonder, funny as well it. it's, it's like so one of the m- funny. best yeah. comic novels like it is actually it it there's is a, there's hilarious a, there's a quote that I came across as well which is kind of uh what was it yeah um So there was, oh yeah, from her, from Padaché's obituary in the Guardian, which was written in 2007 when she passed away, Um, it says, it is rare enough for a person to be so full of life and humour that they can say anything to anybody and get away with it, but much rarer when they can infuse a whole book with that same combination of kindness, wisdom and irreverence, Mm -hmm. and so leave the world an endlessly charming and penetrating memorial of themselves. Though it reads with great ease and spontaneity, every word had been weighed meticulously, with many chapters written eight or nine times. Such devotion reflected her wish to create something worthy of some of her favorite works. John Maysfield's The Book of Delights, James Stevens's The Crock of Gold and the Demigods, The Master and Margarita by Bulgakov, and Flann O'Brien's best novels. So it's so Flann O'Brien to me. It has that Flann O'Brien sense, doesn't it? The real kind of absurd humor, which is, which is, you know, almost sort of psychedelic (laughs) at some levels. Yeah, it's like if Flann
0: O'Brien wrote a children's book, this would be it. Yeah. Although, dare I say, I feel like it's even better than Flann
1: O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, for sure.
0: <laughs> I love, I love Flann O'Brien. Flann O'Brien is one of my favourite writers. The Third Policeman is one of my favourite novels. And this has like, it has,
1: like I, I, I mean, the sergeant. From... Oh, the sergeant in like, Hansel he... Morgan is pure Flann O'Brien, really, isn't it? But yeah, he's yeah. just pure. Oh, I love him. one of my favourite characters. And it's a poor fella. Gets, he gets he up the Amazon on a, on a rubber duck, you know, <laughs> He just gets magically transported from A to B whenever he annoys the Morrigan, enough, she gets she kind of clicks her fingers and sends him off on a on a, a perilous adventure. Should
0: <laughs> we should we talk about our memories of reading it first? So you you read it first, and um, as I'm thinking, I'm probably I probably didn't read it when I was eight because I my memory of reading it is in Kilty where I moved when I was eleven. So I prob we probably read it around the same time. Around the same time, yeah. So yeah, you so you you bought it in a really like perfectly. Magically yeah. authentic way in a bookshop in Galway. So tell yeah, me about that.
1: Well, I mean, I have vague memories of it, but I, I remember when I, the reason I bought the book or the reason I wanted my dad to buy it for me was because I I read it, I read the first few pages where pitch on a hot day is looking through the window of a bookshop in Galway and sees a book. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly what has happened to me because I was there, <laughs> I was there on my holidays. On a, on a warm August day and I was in Galway which I'd never been to before and I was outside of a bookshop and I had looked in and seen this in the window and I, it was like <laughs> you know everything the stars lighting, you know the, the mechanics of the universe clicking into place and I just said I have to have this and uh so that that was where I, and I remember reading it like whenever you know we were on the holiday and we were going around to the west of Ireland you know in the car and you know I would be my, my mother would be like look at the window there's mountain i'm like no i don't care and i'm on page 42 or whatever I'm you know in galway, instead of in the book. book and in the magic. i was galway. in, galway. I in no the need book. to be in real yeah. galway i am here ma'am just you know in a, in a fictional a fictional version of galway not not with you guys but then they were used to that because i had never been any different you know I, i was always a person who'd rather be reading than looking at other humans so that was all normal behavior but that's yeah and i mean i read it like obsessively over, over and over again during my sort of teenage years mm-hmm. um and it's a book that has come with me everywhere I've been you know I've I've always had it in every house I've lived in every place I've gone to <laughs> you know it's, it's been with me uh the first thing I pack the last thing I you know the, the first thing that goes on the shelf has its place of honor you know um I have a shelf that has on my island garner and my Ursula the Gwynn and most of my Diana Wynne Jones on it and this is the hounds it's always there with my my solo books, my 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 most treasured possessions. Yeah, it's definitely a book that I would save from the house if it was on fire. Yeah, me too. So especially,
0: it's... yeah, especially because it just mine mine feels so worn and like it just feels it feels really. It, it it it's a book that feels really nice as well and soft.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I loved I loved the the art on the cover, and I actually yeah. can't see who who did the painting, and I can't. I don't know if I have the artist's name.
0: But on the cover, you can uh-huh. see like it's it's a beautifully illustrated cover. At the Absolutely top, you can a stunningly see stunningly illustrated cover. Like yeah, the three the three faces of
1: the Morrigan. The Morrigan. we have the, the the lady looking out at us is a young, beautiful lady with long golden hair. There's an, a, a witch on either side of her, one with blue hair, one with orange hair, and then we have the beautiful Celtic knotwork all around. Yeah, and then the heads of the hounds coming down uh, on top of the children. We have Pidge with. Putting Whelan on his shoulder, putting in the frog, and we have Bridget, uh, British, his uh, sister beside him. And they and look I used, like I guess they I look mean... like children. They look like children who could have stepped out. Oh, and sorry. Think... Cover illustration by St- Stephen Lavis on the back of the book. It says Stephen Lavis. I don't know the author or I don't know the artist, but. Uh, that that this particular cover has been part of my brain ever since I first saw it. It definitely yeah. drew me to, to want this. I've book.
0: seen other covers and they're just not. This is this is the cover. This is this is what the market looks the like. That's what Pigeon <laughs> yeah. Bridget looks like. That's it. That's yeah. just that's just it. Yeah, um, it's just that's what. Yeah, but yeah, I, I love that you said. Yeah, they look like real children because they do. Yeah, and that's something that they are in the novel as well. Like they're they're such brilliantly drawn. Children yeah. like especially Bridget. Well, both yeah. of them, but like Bridget both is them, such but, a, yeah. a vital,
1: like force of nature.
0: Yeah. Oh my God, she's. I she's mean, Pidge,
1: Pidge is such a Pidge is such a sort of a serious-minded first. You know, he he was like I I love Bridget especially now as I've as I got you know got older but when I was younger reading the book for the first time it was Pidge who had my heart because he was the serious steady oldest mm-hmm. child you know and yeah. I, I had a, I had a younger sibling too who was a bit of a nerd so I completely empathized with <laughs> with Pidge trying to sort of keep Bridget from you know getting lost in in a barrel or whatever she might have been doing at the time you know and uh you know and and he was he like I love the way Pidge is so sort of steady and he you know he he there's a scene at the start of the book where he, he meets a character who's talking. He, almost in riddles to him and he has this really sort of logical sensible way of trying to work through what he's being told and like Pidge bringing his own sort of sensibleness to the stuff he's being told makes it seem even more nonsensical and I love that because it means you know it's basically you can't you can't use common sense to understand the world that Pidge has been has been introduced to now because you can't use modern you can't use common sense with magic it doesn't Mm -hmm. the two don't don't mix you know um but Pidge is a way of navigating the world
0: yeah, it's a source of a lot of the humor. And then like, I'm just yeah. thinking of that uh, again at the v- beginning of the novel when Pidge is coming home and there is those signs saying, you know, this way. This
1: is, yeah, bro- this is the safest road in Ireland. A yeah. cycle on this road with his eyes shut, you know. And, and uh, just
0: like Pidge's thought process. Um, and he yeah, he's like, have it here. He's like, it's just like a student's trick, although it isn't rag week and they're all supposed to be gone home for their holidays. Maybe some of them are back early and they've got some kind of game going on for charity. I wish I knew more about it, where the real fun is this um, is what he
1: thinks when he, he comes across these signs, yeah because yeah. one of the, the signs says this road has been awarded the very safe road prize in the all-Ireland competition for very safe roads any boy <laughs> can cycle on it with his eyes shut try it today you know because this is the, the hounds of uh, the, Oregon, the actual hounds have try, are trying to trick him Um, uh, they're trying to steal back the page that he's just after finding in the bookshop Um, but Pidge isn't Pitch isn't, isn't, so, isn't sucked in because he's too sensible basically yeah. and, and I love that um, but uh, where was the one uh oh yeah, he meets the angler who tries to warn him as well or tries to sort of keep him keep him savvy that there's uh there's trickery up ahead, you know. He wants to tell him of the crossroads, there's danger at the crossroads. Um and I love this bit He says, uh, you know, he says, uh, I'm, t- I'm tell I'm telling you to watch out. He said, There's danger at the crossroads. And Pidge says, At the crossroads up ahead. What kind of danger? Too soon to say, but danger there is. Page could think of only one possible danger. You can't mean traffic, it's so quiet around here i can't mean traffic young human sir but you are to use the eye of clarity when you get to that spot there's deluderings at the crossroads such as would confound geography and cartography (laughs) such as would make pandora's box into a twopenny lucky bag the old angler said earnestly and added bad work and not many knowing it quiet as water under the ground you be careful young mortal sir as there's more than one kind of angling and you could be sniggled in a flash there's lures and lures that's my message a lot of strange things he said and I don't understand the half of it page thought and I love that and I remember reading that I think that was one of the things I read when I you know in the book first I tried to buy the book you know tried to get my dad to buy it for me and just the, the voice of the angler was like there's the rings at the crossroads such as I would know. make such as would confound geography and cartography and I always remember that I like, such as would make Pandora's box into a tuckney lucky bag and I thought that was like it was such a brilliantly Irish way to put yeah. things you know that's as well the as thing about it's so funny you know
0: that's i think i think for me when i read it first i think that was one of the things that spoke to me so hugely about it was how familiar it felt yeah and like the landscape was familiar the way people spoke was familiar um and I, it was it was a similar thing i had when i read patricia lynch uh, i think i read patricia lynch earlier but this yeah, felt I did as well yeah but this, this even was, yeah richer and yeah. more magical but it was that sense that and I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, like that, that kind of that sense that magic and other worlds belonged maybe in England and that, that yeah. happened over there. But this was one of the first times that I was like, OK, there's there's this amazing magical richness to my culture, to my, yeah. landscape, to, to my landscape, to my yeah. world, like it, it, it yeah. it's there. And I remember reading it, I think I read this and I read um, other, another book that we mentioned in the Sive um episode, uh, Cormac McGrace's The Battle Below Guildsburg,
1: which I've read but, since, actually. It's brilliant, so, yeah, yeah,
0: I read that and I read those. And um, also Michael Scott's *Earthlord*, *Firelord*, um, those books. And there was all of these references to a mythology that uh, like like a wealth of stories that I hadn't encountered before. Like so in school, obviously, we would have read like some Fionn McCool stories and some Cú Chulainn stories. But that's it. Like, that's all I'd accessed up until that point. And so when I read these books. What I was starting to realize was there was this whole body of story and mythology that. I had no access to that I didn't know about that was there somewhere, and this was before the Internet, and I remember like I remember this so clearly sitting in like, I even remember the room of the house that I was like, the, so we had like my dad had a little study and then my mum was a physio and she had like a physio um, surgery in the house at that at, at that point in time. And I think I was yeah. like between those two rooms for some reason um, reading it. And maybe I don't know why I was anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but trying to figure out. How I could find out about this mythology and like there was books mentioned at the back of the House of the Marrigan, but they weren't in the local library. And I didn't know how to find out that information. I didn't know who to go to. I remember thinking, maybe I'll write to the publisher and ask them, like, if they could tell me where to go. But I just. I had no. I ha- I had no way of figuring I had a way of doing this research and maybe that's why I became an academic is because (laughs) I needed to learn how to research I needed to learn how to find out about this this wealth of story but yeah it felt it really felt like there was this this world of story that was out of reach for me that was like it was it was in the landscape and in my culture somewhere but I couldn't get at it and it's since made me think that like we don't we don't teach and maybe maybe they do now more I don't know but we don't teach Irish kids enough about about the amazing wealth of stories. richness that we of have.
1: our own our own mythology and folklore yeah yeah that's
0: true we have like so. like tiny snippets to it but mm. we don't I, I well I certainly didn't know anything about like I didn't know anything about Maeve and her like the seven sons I didn't know like the fair aren't mentioned in this book but they're mentioned in Patricia Lynch and in yeah. uh, other books I didn't and Baylor like I didn't know anything about them I'd never heard about them before and the Dagda I'd never heard about the Dagda before and he's I not, like
1: no
0: like it, it hadn't been part of my
1: schooling yeah that's no, true I don't think it was part of my schooling either but I think I had I had a book that was about mythology and folklore, and I'm trying to remember, it possibly was one of the ones from the, the child. I mean, everything goes back to the childcraft annual to me, you know, <laughs> but uh, I did because there's so many volumes of that that I literally like absorbed, you know, over a period of years as a child. And I'm sure that there were mentions of Irish of mythology and that, but I like. I was aware of who some of these people were, uh, although looking back because I've learned so much since and I've read mm. so much since that I actually can't remember. I can't I can't unpick the weave of where did I first come across this stuff. I mean, the, the, the Hands of Morgan is such a powerful book to me that I'm assuming it was where I first came across most of this stuff. But I also know that I was reading Michael Scott as a kid, uh, possibly younger than this, um, and I was reading things like um, when did I read uh, Orla Mellings' work? But like, there was other other authors that I came across that had similar you know mythological themes to their work Mm -hmm. and I can't I can't remember which order I read them in. but certainly the the richness like I mean you're saying the richness of Irish mythology and folklore that's in the Hounds of the Morrigan is is sort of like you know where where, when you when you read a mythology themed book you sort of assume it's going to be Greek or Roman or perhaps Norse or you know what I mean you don't expect it to be anything else and then to have to know that we have an equally rich mythological cycle you know or mythological culture I guess in, in this country that's has has so many amazing stories and characters in it you know that are just as much just as just as valuable just as (laughs) incredible to read about um you know it is sad that we don't we don't as you say well certainly in our time in school it wasn't really taught in school perhaps it is different now um uh you know but i wish i wish we we had as part of our uh, you know studies you know that we had a a module or whatever on on the power of of irish mythology um you but know, it's, it's, it's I mean
0: it's probably the result well, it's definitely the result of like colonial,
1: colonial oppression
0: well, that yes, and <laughs> um the and i actually want to come back to the colonial oppression um in relation to the market in, in a bit um all right but um remind me okay. uh, so I'm colonial oppression, us. colonial oppression for sure, but also like the role of Catholicism. And like so the the Christianization of, of all of oh, those yeah. myths. And so, yeah. also like, I mean, our schooling was and still is, is um run by and structured by Catholic the Cat the institution of Catholicism. So we were given little snippets, but like you know, there was never time spent on the dogma or like yeah. on the pantheon of, of Irish gods and goddesses and yeah. I mean a lot of them like a lot of the Information is lost because it was an oral culture and it was written down by Christian monks who decided which bits they were going to write down. And I mean, this is one of the great like sorrows of my life is that sense that there is all this stuff that, that we don't have access to anymore.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose as a former medievalist, I'm used to that sense of loss, you know, <laughs> we have we have so much, but we we will never know stuff that we could have had, you know, all stuff that's not no longer extant or stuff that didn't, you know, we don't we have hints of, but we don't have the full text or whatever. But,
0: but then yeah, I think there, I mean, there are people who are conduits for us. We're going to get yeah. very hippie hippie now, but yeah, there go are people on, who first. are conduits for us and Patricia Lynch, Pat O'Shea, Patricia Lynch, yes, and Pat O'Shea, they are writers and you, I think Sinead as well, are conduits for for accessing the sense and feeling and the, the magic of that mythology. Thank and you, I don't one deserve of the, to be mentioned to those legends. No, no. Um, but one of the things that this book gives me is just that sense that there's this ancient magic that's dormant in the landscape and that, that kind of flickers and and comes to life every now and then. And the the story of the Hound of the Maragon is one of those times when that magic is is like not even flickering it's like it's 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 glowing roaring, it's vibrant. Into it's roaring life. yeah roaring yeah. Into full, that's,
1: uh, well writer, I'm, out, that's... I'm allowed to talk about it because it's it's been announced now but my my next book is coming this later this year and it's called the silver road and i'm so excited about it because it would not exist without the hounds of the morrigan um it is like it's a book based in Irish mythology as well and it talks about a lot of the characters that we're mentioning here and has well it, it references the dog the um References people like Balor. I don't call him Balor, um, Balor of the Evil Eye. Um, well, see, I don't uh, know how to pronounce them because I've never read them. Um, well, I see. I remember Balor from the, of the Evil Eye from, uh, I'm sure, I think it was Eddie Lenahan, um, who's still in, uh, he's a storyteller who's still around and he's going strong, which is great. But in the 80s, he had a sort of a, a TV, like he had a TV show uh, where he retold stories from old Ireland. And i have doing a lot of research and to see, it is, 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 was it was it him, but there's there's a person's voice that I could, whenever I hear the, or read the, the name of Balor, I hear it in this person's voice, Balor, Balor of the Evil Eye. Um, uh, he's not. That. I don't think he's he's not actually in the house of Morgan. I don't think Balor, but he's no. He's, uh, he, but but the dog is mentioned. Um, and, uh, and the Morrigan herself. I mean, the Morrigan is like. I mean, she's the best. Is, is 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 there a more amazing character in Irish mythology? I mean, we probably should give a vague idea of who she is for people who aren't like familiar with her. But like a lot of mythologies, I mean, she is a triple aspect goddess. Mm-hmm. So she's uh, you know, she's she's one person, but she's also three people. Um uh you know the mother mother wife and or mother mother maiden crone i mean it's yeah. it's 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 around in so many different mythologies and so many different versions but in this book she uh she takes the aspect of, th- of three beautiful young ish young women uh breeda breeda fairfell melody moonlight and morrigan i don't think there's a it's third married. she the her the third aspect doesn't have another name no in the book, but the the human aspects take funny names uh breeda fairfell and, and melody and moonlight. The, so at that point, I can combine
0: with the my colonial oppression, but like, and I don't know if I talked to you about this recently, but have you noticed that Breda Fairfell and Melanie Moonlight, like they're English, and they speak with English accents. Really? Yeah, and they like reference like hockey sticks and. Oh, like... I
1: suppose so. Yeah, I never thought of that. I never I never picked up on it. Isn't that gas? I've read this book about five million times and I've never But I think that only occurred to
0: I think that only occurred to me when I reread it for this podcast. And I mean their their accents slip and change, but um Yeah, they well they do
1: anyway, don't they? All all the way through the book. They there's and, and the whole the book has that. that's the power this book has is the way Patrick Shea can slip between registers. I want to talk mm-hmm. about that later yeah. as well. About like, you know, she, she has equal control when she's talking. When she's using you know, a high register and when she's using the the lower register as well, um. But I'm looking at a page here, page one hundred three, where they're talking about uh. Talking about it's 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 Pidge um, is their dad a British dad has been to the fair and he brought mm-hmm. home a mare, who is kind of you know there's uh that the horse has something something horrible is in the horse and Pidge is aware of something horrible is in the horse, um you know and uh. Sorry. What was it? oh yeah and there were there were the, the, anyway the women are talking to each other and they're talking about it. They're saying come on, come on, let us see you the three looked at each other how beautiful you look said brida fairfell exquisite murmured melody moonlight something seemed to tremble in the air between them laughter they giggled and laughed and shuddered as if they would shake to pieces beautiful gasped brida fairfell at last oh peachy whooped melanie melody, melody moonlight and then Pidge knew that they were laughing at the idea of beauty as the height of nonsense but it's just the way, like, you know, oh, peachy, I suppose that mm-hmm. is a kind of a British, isn't that a kind of a, an, a not a very Irish way to to signify delight at something. So, yeah, maybe. you have Yeah, there. I mean, but
0: I mean, then there's also times when they talk in a very Irish register as well, because yeah. I guess, yeah, they're like shapeshifters. And um. but I that occurred to me when I was reading it for the podcast, that there's like often they slip into a. A very English register.
1: Right, that's interesting. Well, maybe that's reflective of padache's own experience. So having gone to England as a young woman, and she probably would be very familiar with English modes of speech or patterns of mm-hmm. speech as well, as well as her native Gaul region. Um, but yeah, no, but the, the Morrigan anyway, she's a triple aspect goddess. She
0: Yeah, she's a triple aspect goddess. She's a battle goddess.
1: Battle she? goddess, that's it. She's yeah. a
0: goddess of war and fury. And um, there is a brilliant... There is a brilliant section that you pulled out in your in your notes where they are where the three of them are speaking. Um, Oh, yeah. yeah, Have that handy because that's basically what we're going to do in this podcast is we're going to talk like we're like we're doing, but also we're going to read a lot of extracts from the novel just to show you how how wonderful it is.
1: Yeah, Nate's probably
0: is, going to do a better job reading than I am because I can't Well,
1: read I'll try and plan my, my Irish accent. Yeah, but, I'll yeah, try and do in, some too. In, in, but um, one yeah, of the on, that I was yeah I was going to I was going to read this kind of to compare the, the different registers, but uh, it'll do as well to explain what kind of what kind of person or mm-hmm. what the character the Morrigan is. So this is from page three hundred sixty five in the novel that says, "In every human head there is a seed of evil," said the Morrigan. It thrives in some and makes them stand out among their fellows for their wickedness and cruelty. The little seed suffocates and cannot flourish when it is choked by love. The little seed cannot flourish, said Macha, when it is smothered by compassion. The little seed cannot flourish, said Bauv, when it is stifled by tolerance. Truth is nourished by belief, said the Morrigan. There are many truths. I am a truth. I am a truth, said Macha. I am a truth, said Bauv. They shall believe in us again. They shall see our greatness and fear us. We shall be nourished and grow even stronger, they said. When mankind cries mercy, my ears are shells of granite, said the Morrigan. My child is the blowfly, the mother of maggots. Time is a slow dream. Time is quicksilver, said Maka. The sun rises. The day dawns. The wheel turns. Our time comes again, said Bao. <laughs> oh, it's just terrifying. It's terrifying. It just and also makes his say... skin just prickle. Yeah. So Maka um, and Bav yeah. are the the proper names for Melody Melody Moonlight and uh, Breeda They're Maka Balv and Morrigan are the names of, this, of the three goddesses that together yeah. make up the Morrigan, the, the triple aspect goddess. Um, so there's the Battle Pro. Uh, uh there's the oh, like, they're basically the goddesses of war, death, and you know, that's it. Yeah, the war, war, death, and destruction essentially together. You know that that's yeah. what they what they what they sum up. You know. Um, but they, yeah, they're like like the kind of goddesses you might see on a battlefield. You know, they're kind of you know, waiting for the destruction to be over, and then they swoop in and take yeah. the bodies and you know and rats feeding, the battlefield like, and feed yeah
0: feeding yeah. feeding the battle fury and feeding off the battle fury yeah um, exactly
1: yeah yeah
0: that, that's and they're
1: and of course her, her her name her name means great queen isn't it like the the great queen the great queen that's what her name actually means oh she's
0: she's kind of Cúchulainn's great enemy. Isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she's like a crow is one of her aspects as well, which doesn't really yeah. feature in this this novel um too much. But um she is like I think this novel might have been my first encounter with her. And she's just so frightening in this novel. She's so terrifying. Yeah. like they're hilarious Breda, Fairfowl, and Melody Moonlight are absolutely hilarious. And actually most of the bits that I want to read out are like um scenes with them. The attaché, like draws them uh, their their comic element so brilliantly. But the comic element is always like undercut with this, like they like can the they can turn <laughs> on a knife. Like they are, they can go from that like in that brilliant way, that like really terrifying way, they can go from like being really, really, really funny to being terrifying in a second. And that happens like for you as a reader and also for yeah. the character. Like a character yeah. is talking to them and like kind of um disarmed
1: by their fun their charm or their fun or whatever and then they turn on a sixpence and yeah. they're simply yeah. pure evil yeah you know and that yeah, was, I, like I remember fantastic. as a child
0: that being like so frightening yeah so bone-chilling yeah. that yeah like these these women could present and I think it was the thing of like they could present one face but but that's exactly what that's exactly yeah. what
1: the triple aspect is about isn't it you know like yeah. you know you could one face and then suddenly it switches and it's a different yeah. face, even though they are three separate women it, although they do they do merge into one they body do. on yeah. uh, uh, at least one occasion but it, it kind of goes into I was going to say too there's there is a like this is a book in which nobody really is who they appear to be yeah. appearances are constantly in flux I mean many characters turn out to be other characters in disguise mm-hmm. um you know and from like from around page 50, we meet two people, two characters who I love, and Booty yeah. and Patsy, yeah. uh, who are deities in disguise. And they look like two people, you know, living off the land, you know, possibly mm-hmm. homeless. But really, they are they're Angus Oak and, and Bridget, um, you know, and they are two of the most powerful gods in the two of the Danon. Um And, uh, you know, they 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 fight the hounds to keep Bridget safe without her realising or, you know, our, our Bridget, because uh, there's Bridget and then Bridget, the character. Um, and they're delighted to see that Bridget, whose name, that they praise you know is wearing daisy chains um and these turn out to be useful later as well um you know picks the daisy chains the daisy is the, the flower of angus oak you know and uh bridget just makes daisy chains like any five-year-old kid might do you know for to put time in but then there's a scene where which i loved i loved so much this scene when i was a child reader when she she puts the daisy chains on the wrists of mm. is it melody fairfell or Fairfax, yeah. one, one of one of the women anyway and they instantly turn into Proper handcuffs, you know, like they, they kind of turn iron. into gold and iron handcuffs, and and uh, they go and they start shrieking about ah the flowers of Angus, oh the no nini no nini, which is the Irish word for for daisies, you know, and and they're really powerful weapons against the Morrigan. Just mm-hmm. these these ordinary daisy chains, and I remember looking at daisy chains and looking at daisies with a whole new appreciation for their amazing power. I know that
0: and that's on. like
1: that's something um, I love about it as well because it's like you know daisies,
0: these flowers that are everywhere, these flowers that are kind of like yeah. weeds, yeah that are like so inconsequential. But in when, you know, I guess it's like when you know the culture, when you yeah. know the stories, when you know the gods and the goddesses and you know the resonance of of the significance of these flowers. Um, And this is a I guess this is a metaphor for like colonialism and like what what Catholicism did to mythology as well. But like they're weeds until you know that they are these extraordinarily powerful objects, that have meaning and yes. can like can dest- not
1: destroy, but can like but can, counter can, the can counter evil. And and for like as a child as well, it gives you a sense of real, you know, sh- I could do this. I I could I could yeah. come across something so ordinary and and basic and everyday, and it might turn out to be something that has this amazing power. Mm-hmm. You know, it it just for me as a child reader, when I read that bit with Bridget and the, and the. And the the no needy, the 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 daisy chains turning into actual handcuffs. I thought, wow, you know, like this is the power, this is the potential that's in everything that we could, like anything you could see, could possibly be a weapon against the Morrigan. You know, I could be a weapon against the Morrigan. Yeah. Because, you know, it just gave me such a sense of the potential and power that's in every child, or that's in everything you could possibly see. It just really opened up my eyes to to the magic that's everywhere. You know. Like, yeah, and I think it changed my book.
0: It changed my perspective about. Like things that I'd been told that were ordinary and things that I've been told that were like weeds or things that I've been told were like useless that actually maybe they weren't. Yeah, maybe there was and magic that- Everywhere,
1: in everywhere, yeah, and everything, and it's like that—the presents that the children get from Booty and Patsy, yeah. like they, they get a, they get presents that don't seem to mean anything at the time, yeah. like a scrying glass or a pouch of hazelnuts when no nuts should be yet ripe, you know, a penny whistle yeah. for for Bridget and a, a box of secret sweets to be opened oh, on swapping day. They are my favourite. Uh, like they're amazing, but you don't know what they are until later oh, yeah. in the story, and all becomes yeah. clear. And they all—they all have such a powerful use when they are needed, you know. And to me, like reading it now, I guess it's like you know the 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 children carry these things f- through the whole story and the thing that they and and they become useful just when they're needed and it's like a like a reward for for taking care of them all this time. Suddenly they become it becomes yeah. obvious what, what they're what they're needed for. Um yeah and that our, like yeah. that feeds into like that every action that the children take,
0: however small, yeah and like every tiny kindness has like has consequence has big consequences like, which is a kind of, I think, like a kind of broader political and kind of eco-political point. Like, every action, every tiny action that you make on the world has these bigger consequences. Like, and I'm thinking of, well, the worm and yeah. and then the spider that, like, Bridget plays oh, yeah. yo-yos with the spider. And actually, I really wanted I to read that. um gophers, if I can. Oh yeah, amazingly, it opened on the on the right page. The magic of because uh, cause I have like I was going through the book last night, like so trying to pick out Bits that I wanted to read, want to read basically yeah. I've, mar- I've marked up the whole book so <laughs>
1: awesome well you could pick any page yeah there's something
0: readable on every page so go for it um now I can't do accents I can't even do my own go accent on. Go on. <laughs> um hanging by the neck leaves a deep impression on a person it said startled they looked up but saw no one but the voice continued conversationally hanging by the rear leaves no impression at all And a spider, a portly gentleman about as big as a crab apple hanging by a thread, dropped and swung gently before their faces. Do you remember me? He asked genially. No, they said. And who was it played yo-yos with me? Not me, Bridget said quickly. I never saw a spider your size before. Wasn't it yourself outside the blacksmith's? No, she said, her face blank but going pink. It must have been someone else. Well, tisn't to you I should be talking to so, the spider said and he pretended to go away up his little rope. It was me, she said then. I didn't mean any harm. And no harm done, the spider said, sliding down again and dangling in front of them. I wish I had a fly for every time someone made a yo-yo of me. He was wearing a shirt that was ruffled at the neck and cuffs, black knee breeches, knitted stockings on his lower legs, and a pair of buckled hornpipe shoes. On his head was a little hard hat, and he smoked a a small clay pipe. Anastasia knew you'd be coming. She read it in the tea leaves. I was set to watch for you here, he said. Are you going to help us, Pidge asked. To be sure, I am. You'll have to come inside the tree. How do we do that? Is there a door? Bridget asked hopefully. No, but if you're as good on your whistle as you are at playing yo-yos, there'll be no bother on us at all, the spider replied, and he laughed mildly. Bridget took out her whistle, covered the holes as before, and put it to her lips. She thought to herself that she would surely play the same tune again, but it was entirely different, though equally lovely. The tree was opening slowly. I could just, I could keep reading that chapter. I don't, I don't it's just, stop. It's, it's just so lovely. I love um, it. And then can I just read a, a little bit? Because um, that, so that that spider is called
1: Mollyogs. Mollyogs, um, yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how you pronounce that, but that's that's how I always said it as well. Yeah, Mollyogs. And his his wife is Anastasia. Anastasia. And
0: yeah. <laughs> there's just a great bit a few pages later. Um, so. They're, sit- they're inside the tree with the spiders and Molly Oaks and Anastasia have like lots of baby, baby spiders, baby spiders. Um, and for a while, the only sound to be heard was the clicking of the knitting needles. And it was all very peaceful until suddenly Anastasia gave a shriek and went rigid. Hark, I hear a voice, she cried. I feel them. The invisibles are here. <laughs> the knitting dropped from her lifeless hands. The little spiders shuffled in close together. Oh, Janie, they whispered. And all of their eyes stood out in their heads and were like dozens of tiny full moons. She's gone off, Mollyog said, relighting his pipe. Now we should hear something <laughs> worth hearing. She's got funny, one of the kids said while they waited, and he shook with nervous giggles. Hush, Molly Oaks admonished him and puffed his pipe. To all experience, uh, to all appearances extremely calm. Anastasia's eyes went glassy. There's a message. I'm getting a message. The voice is faint. Um yeah, it's just it's
1: wonderful it's hilarious and i just i just well, i mean i don't know there's so many things i could say you know about the language and and the, yeah the, the funniness of the language you know or or the characters but there's i suppose there's one bit that i i, <laughs> I have a few bits of the really funny irishy sort of bits oh, yeah. marked but there's this one that i wanted to say it, are you and please
0: please read um a bit of with
1: corny the bit of court from corny and uh right that okay. so was kind of corny. Right read other ones. Or too. I was gonna read, read the one the the one about Putney Whelan. What oh Putnin Whelan,
0: my favourite character in the whole world. Putney Whelan is a well frog it's not, it's not, it's just... not
1: actually Putnin himself, it's it's somebody speaking about Putney. I, I just thought okay. it was really funny. So uh Pudney Whelan is a is frog and he becomes very important later in the story but he's just hilariously funny but the whole way the through. Um and um at one point in the story he's not in the greatest of shape. Uh and uh the, the children uh come across another character Bagsy Curly another, another frog Bagsy Curly I was telling them all about how 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 much of a how much of a, in what horrible state putting is in and uh so this this is from page 117 so it's a according to whore he's prostrated and flattened and not worth washing this morning tell them she says that he's not worth a rat's ransom that he has about as much pep as a wash letter and he looked like a whack work he's a rub out frog she says and there's no more pitiful sight on this earth than a frog with no poof left in him. And I wouldn't be surprised, she says, if he do not come down with the hooply cough or queasels because of all he'd been through. He looked like an old prune from outer magnolia, she says, and he can't go out today. <laughs> uh. And that's Doug Curly quoting Miss Fancy Finnerty, who's talking about pudding <laughs> in Bieland and the state he's in. And I mean, those bits used to make me just laugh and laugh and laugh. And I could hear them in my head as yeah. the, I mean, as as i was reading them you know and like there's just so much of this book is is hilarious and as you were saying there's a fight between hannah and corny is around page 240 i can't remember actually who Hannah and corny there's two characters that they meet on the way cornelius and hannah who are who are um married and they (laughs) i think the way they the way the talk reminded me a lot of my are they because because they do they do become i forget who the they turn into somebody else don't they are, like are they bagsy and or not bagsy, like are they booty and patsy booty and patsy i think i think they're yeah. another aspect of them yeah yeah but they're they the children come across them on a they're, have, they're having a fight during during wash day um and i could read the whole thing but i mean i don't know which get to start with really but uh you know so for chapter 14 Do you know what, like i don't start. think
0: there's an as far as i'm aware there's no audiobook of this and an audiobook of this would be amazing and also should, i'd like to, there, name there should to read it
1: there should be Well, I'll give it to my guest. Are you ready? (coughs) Settle in now. Make yourself a cup of tea and we'll we'll start. So, So chapter 14. Nearing the cottage, they were surprised to hear loud howls coming from within. Suddenly, the half-door flew open and a small man, in his shirt-tails only, ran out, his little thin lark's legs twinkling through the grass almost too fast to be seen. He was pursued by a big, fat woman, waving her enormous arms threateningly and shouting after him. Oh, the little dribbler! The little man reached the apple tree, was up it in a flash, and perched on a branch, looking down at her. Come down, Cornelius, she thundered. No, Hannah, not at the moment, the little man said meekly. You'll only bait me again, Hannah, the little man explained. He's spat in me dinner, the little diviline, the woman said. I'll break him in pieces when he comes in for his tea. Uh, no, Hannah, the little man wheedled. Yes, said the fat woman. A poke in the pluck is what you're asking for, and a poke in the pluck is what you'll get. Having said this, Hannah marched back inside in the cottage and slammed the half door. That one would clean ye yeah, beyond soap and water, the little man said to the children. She's forever scrubbing the skin off of me and whipping the duds off of me back, and it's washboards, tubs, blow bags, and soap suds so from cock shout till sunset, and her hands looking like two old grey crepe looking like old grey crep and her arms looking like two red bolsters, and the look on her face stop a clock. That's what she done just now. Whipped the bridges off of me, and I was just going down to sit down to me bacon and cabbage. Did you really spit in her dinner? Asked Pidge. I didn't. Bedad. The little man replied emphatically. I was driven to it. In a fair fight, I'm nowhere with her. You saw the size of her and the immensity of arms she has. That's what I done, all right. I spat in her dinner. I was for legging it then out the door. Only she caught me by the tails of my shirt. And it was fisticuffs and buffetings to bait the band. (laughs) And I love that. I love that because my parents used to say things like to bait the band, you know, "You you have such and such to bait the band. Or, you know, and I love the way Parashay uses the H like she puts in the word driven she puts the H after the D so it turns yeah. into driven you know and no, the, uh, it's you just can so purely hear the Irish in it. it's so authentic like it's so real like I knew people who spoke like that absolutely you know I could hear like the reason I could hear it in my head and the way I can and that I can read it is because that's the way my parents my family mm-hmm. my people spoke even though Padge was from Galway and was writing about Galway it was just you know even though there, there's it's some I think it's Booty and Patsy at some point in the story they they say rest daisy they use they use the phrase rest daisy and to me that's pure I can hear my granddad you know that's, yeah. that's the, you know that's that's the way he used to speak and it was such a comforting it was such yeah. a comforting to read as a child you know people that sounded exactly like the people that were in your life you know um And you know, and it Hannah, wasn't like a, a hokey representation no, of no, it. No, totally was totally. It was a really completely real representation of it. You know, like I mean, I suppose it is. It is a bit dramatised. I suppose for for you know for fun, but like yeah. it's not. It's not. It's not on. It's not. It doesn't feel, you know, authentic. You know, yeah. It's it's pure authenticity. You know, I mean, that scene between uh Hannah and Corny goes on for pages. You know about. The, the, the fight gets worse and he he throws in a, a lump of cow dung. Pops. he throws cow dung into the house and you know uh, so uh, so she throws she throws the flat iron out the window and uh, and uh, she's strong isn't she the little man whispered proudly to the children I'm whispering so that she she, she won't hear me praising her in any way he picked up a great big gnarl of dried cow dung missed me you nasty hummocky lump of glum do you know what you are you're the greatest holy show on earth used to have a complexion like milk and roses, but now it's more like rhubarb and custard. You used to have normal legs under you, and now you've got two portions of telegraph poles inhabiting your stockings. You're an owl monster done up in pink corsets, and here's another present for you, and I hope you enjoy it. With that, the dried dung followed the apples straight in over the half door. There wasn't a sound from Hannah. It's like getting feathers off a frog, isn't it? The little man said to the children humorously. After a few minutes, there came a roaring like that of a bull having his teeth out against his will from inside the cottage. I think she was in shock there for a minute, but she's got her wind back now. The little man said gleefully, "Oh, my little flowery pops, ruined and bedoned and spoiled beyond it, and by that little crooked-legged Egypt outside." <laughs> and also, I do you mean, know what I love about? I literally read the whole
0: thing. Uh, is I love how much. He loves her size. Absolutely, like,
1: he loves her. He loves, loves her. He how admires big she her is. size. Like he admires her strength. Yeah, he thinks she's the best thing on earth, and yet he he still throws cow dung into her dinner. And, and they're just having
0: hilarious. like you and clearly like that fight is like. They're having so much fun. It's a
1: it's a performance, really. Yeah, for them, isn't it? Like it's not it's not really. That's probably why it's so much fun to read. Because I mean, it is quite a violent fight <laughs> in some place They're throwing irons at each other and things. But you know, at the back of it all, it's pure. There's love, purely there. for yeah. the, for the fun, you know. And yeah. I think that's is that an iron like I mean, I, I remember in my own manga, yeah, like would would have these performative. Rolling matches too, when we were kids, and you know it would turn into laughter, you know, after minutes because they'd know that there weren't the ang- there was no real anger there. It was pure that they were just blown off steam, and it would turn into laughter and whatever afterwards. And that it just reminded me, Honey, Hannah and Corny, that scene reminded me so much of the kind of things that my own mum dad would be getting up to at the time. So it's it's pure. It, it just brings me right back to to that time in my life. But I love that, you know, I love. That your cross-grained hump of misfortune there's so many oh. so many beautiful wandleers <laughs> well, the language the language <laughs> is
0: just so twisty and brilliant in in throughout the novel yeah and like and and the bits you all of the bits you've read out like you can really see her range as you yes, say that's exactly like, it like she can she,
1: she can go from this you know this timeless you know the, the the chilling scene we read out mm-hmm. about when the Morgan is, is kind of in regaining her power, you know, that, that bit that sounds like it comes from an ancient text and then she can go and, and talk about Hannah and Corney throwing dung at each other and, you know, and uh, poor old fancy Finnerty talking about Pudnine Wheel and being, you know, looking like an old prune from outer Magnolia. Like she she can she can have this she has an equal control over her her her, ta- her language, you know, in in both in all those registers, you know. Um and and as you were saying earlier, like every single character is is so real even the ones that we don't meet for very long you know mm. they, they're all they're all so important and so you know so um well drawn you know but uh can we talk about bridget for a minute yes can we, we can talk? yeah because
0: um i love, bridget. I love um, bridget so much she is i love i love her practical like she's just a brilliant combination of someone who thinks really practically and dreamily at the same time at the same time yeah there's a lovely yeah. moment, um, up that kind of on page one hundred thirty-seven of our editions, which illustrates like Bridget's really practical, like it illustrates a few things for me, like really like Bridget's really practical way of thinking, oh, yeah. um, about magic, and it also like illustrates something about magic and the or the way the novel thinks about and represents magic, yeah. um. So Seri- it's Serena, isn't it? The Serena donkey Baging that's the talking. Donkey, yeah. yeah. Who's brilliant, who's like douses for the path with her ears, yeah. which is I I when I remember reading that, like I think every time I read that I'm like that, it's pure genius. Yeah. Um so Serena's talking about magic. She says, There's always a lot of magic, but our way of seeing it is very small and we mostly just call it nature. And uh, for before I keep reading, I always hate it when people said there's magic. It's just na- like it's, it's nature. That's what magic is? And I was like, no, that's like that's so reductive. That's that's not what magic is. But this is a really different way of thinking about that. So Serena is saying there's always a lot of magic, but our way of seeing it is very small. and We mostly just call it nature. Why we are not at all surprised that we can pick an apple in the autumn that was a pink flower in the spring. That's natural magic and we don't really notice it. Yes, and what about butter? Bridget said. Butter? Yes, it's hard and it comes out of something soft. It's yellow and it comes out of something white. Just by battering the cream with the dasher, it comes in wee little weeny grainines and when you rock the churn, it turns into lumps. That's magic. There used to be spells and charms about making butter in the old days and even up to when Auntie Bina was a child. That just proves it, Bridget said smugly. I knew I was right. (laughs) I love her.
1: And I love there's a scene when uh it, back earlier in the book page twenty-seven, um, when she's kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of getting to know Bridget, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And she she kind of she's 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 disappeared, you know, Auntie Bina can't find her. And uh and Page eventually he, he sort of knows he he has an idea where she might be, and he goes and finds her and she's down in a barrel, basically, as she would, or in a, in an unused water butt. Uh, and uh she's like, you know, uh he and he's you know, he Pidge is shouting for her, like and she comes up from she comes up out of it and she goes. What are you shouting for? I thought you were lost, Pidge said foolishly. Me? Lost? I never get lost. I've just this minute been down to the inside of the world and I met a mad earwig and we went to a battle and then I came back and I never got lost, not even for a second. Did you bring anything back from your journey? Bina asked. Only the mad earwig. I brought him up to give him some cough mixture to make him better, but you can have him if you want him. Bina thought it over. I don't think I need one, she said. Better leave him free. But I love that, that, you know, to me, that's pure, that's pure a five-year-old and how a five-year-old would think you know like just I wasn't lost I was down meeting a mad earwig but even the fact that she mentions this mad earwig in passing yeah. and then and he, he, and he becomes up- so important later yeah. in the story you know the mad earwig she did meet a mad earwig an uh, earwig who thinks he's Napoleon and, uh, <laughs> and he becomes really important later in the story you know and I loved Bridget as a child and I love yeah. her still like she's entirely 100% herself like yeah. steady as a rock but And even if she is telling tall tales, you get the impression that she believes them to, to be true. So but also they're not tall comes tales. lying to her, you know, yeah.
0: Because she is, like, she has met that earwig. And yeah, exactly. Like, she has yeah, yeah. been to... She has, like... There's a... quote on page, uh, like, 329 about, like, the relationship between our world and fairy, or our world and the other world. Yeah. Um, where... Who is it that's speaking... Who is Looking it that's good. speaking? Kuru, it's Kuru the Kuru. Fox. Oh yeah, Kuru the Fox, yeah. Um. And he's, because they were talking about Pudneen, they'd met Pudneen and um, Kuru says, Pud... but we were only in Ireland when a frog, when frog spoke, spoke to, us, to us, weren't we, when Pidge we? asked dubiously, okay. still trying to understand. Pudneen, Bridget said, his name was Pudneen Whelan. True, you were, but already even then, elements of this world had touched and come into yours. You'd noticed a lot of strange things before then, hadn't you? Yes, Pidge agreed. Our frontiers are made of mists and dreams and tender waters. Thresholds are crossed from time to time. And so you understood the frog because there was already a mingling, do you see? Are we really in Tirnanog? Are these mountains the Twelve Pins? Pidge asked. They are the Twelve Pins and Fairy, yes. It's all a bit queer, said Bridget. You know the way you can sometimes see someone who looks lost in a crowd, said Sonny. Yes, said Bridget. Yes, Pidge said. No, Bridget frowned. Well, he might be in fairy. Have you ever known one person to stop and listen to the cuckoo calling and the person standing beside him doesn't hear anything and thinks his friend is only imagining it? Yes, Pidge said. Bridget half nodded. Or a girl might look into a river and shout, look, there's a fish. And her friend shouts, where, where? I can't see it. Oh, yes, Bridget agreed. The two worlds go hand in hand. As you know from going through the stones, you could be walking through a field and a few steps to the right of you, you could be walking in this world. And that's just like, I love that relationship between our worlds and fairy. And I love that Bridget can't quite understand what they're talking about because she kind of lives in fairy most of the, time, the time herself. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, true. Yeah. And yeah,
0: just that like, yeah, that that sense that there is this other world. There is this magic dormant in the landscape.
1: Yeah.
0: But that there's always ways that it like we can ac- like there's there, it, 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 yeah, and the boundary, like it's not they're not like, there's not you don't need portals to go there. The boundaries are really porous, and there's mm-hmm. always this kind of slippage and merging of the two worlds, and that that as a child, and as an adult, speaks to me. So important,
1: yeah, and yeah, and, and I love the
0: way Bridget like completely occupies both worlds, both of her worlds. Yeah. Like, yeah, she's just present in both worlds
1: that's what yeah it's kind of what I mean too she's like 100% solid whatever yeah. wherever she is Bridget is Bridget you know mm-hmm. and I love that like that and sometimes I get the impression that Bridget tells the truth all the time yeah, yeah but not but she's not believed sometimes because some of her stuff because it sounds like one of her mad stories yeah but there could could there be a better way of getting across to a child reader how unfair the world is you know, know. And, how, and how Bridget's side is the side to be on you know and I remember a, a scene from this book has stayed with me forever and from the first moment I read it I had never you know when you read something and you feel seen you know I'd never felt like somebody had understood me completely before. And when I read this, when I read this book, or when I read this bit in this book, I read it over and over again because I felt as though it was speaking to, to my soul. And it's on page 43 of this book. And it's um, Bridget trying to explain how it feels to be frustrated, you know, to, or how it feels to be sort of, you know, I think it's in, uh, yeah, it's just, so it says, you know what it's like when you're, when you're waiting for something? Yes, this is Bridget talking. It's like being kept in a bag and hung up on a nail. Pidge thought he knew what Bridget meant, but he wasn't sure. How do you mean, he asked. I mean, it's like being kept in a bag and hung up on a nail on the back of a door in a shed, Bridget said, with deep significance. And you don't want to be in the bag and it's too hot inside it and all you can do is bang yourself against the door and you're too soft to make any noise and no one can hear you. Now do you know what I mean? Yes, he said. It's just like trying to break the sky with your fist, isn't it, she said. She She sounded as if she'd tried it many times. Yes, I get so hot with madness because no one would hear me in the shed, wouldn't you? I would. So that was how Bridget felt when she when she only seemed impatient or thwarted. It was like you know this is Pidge talking to her, so Pidge kind of understands. He gets in and he gets in, in a window into Bridget's mind and how she thinks and how she feels. But I remember reading that that bit and going, that's exactly how it feels to be impatient or to be frustrated or to be annoyed. You know, I mean, that's exactly how it felt for me to be hung up in a bag on the back of a door you know banging against the door nobody can hear you and you're too hot and i thought like it's such a specific image and yet it meant so much to me you know and i that's one of the things i have never forgotten from the first time i read this book was how i just that that i remember going back and forth and reading that and reading it again and reading it again and every time i read it it became more meaningful to me uh you know and i i totally felt as though I could relate to Bridget in that scene in general, but in that scene in particular, yeah, um you know, and she's brave and she's bright and she's eager to be part of things. She's no filter exactly like a child of her age. and she's she's so perfectly observed, you know, she's she's just purely as a five year old child would be. you know, I think she's she's brilliantly brilliantly written, yeah, um, you know? and Pidge um, is like just
0: that little bit older and just like at that edge that you probably are when you're reading the novel, oh yeah, like- exactly. Like being a bit older, moving towards the adult world and yeah. like leaving behind the world of fairy and like that kind of slight. Like there's a slight skepticism, but at the same time, a complete openness to what he's encountering. Um, So that way that the way that Bridget is, as we say, like she's so fully herself and she's so. Of fully in both worlds like there, there there, there isn't any problem for Bridget like operating simultaneously in the real world and in the world of fairy um and Bridget like she uh, she she operates intuitively and like according to her senses and I that's something I feel that that's kind of a theme running through the novel is that that Trusting yourself and listening to yourself, and it's something kind of Pidge has to learn to do more. And I can't remember where it is in the novel. Like, there's a kind of the reader realizes it before Pidge does that. Pidge is actually like he thinks everyone is guiding him, but actually he's the one who is intuiting the path. He's in, he's oh, yeah. intuiting
1: the way. I remember that now. Something to do with geese in the sky. Or needle, yeah, uh, yeah, our yeah. The, yeah. The, he's following the geese and scars. yeah. yeah. Or needle knows the the wind vane character that gives him guidance as well,
0: yeah, yeah. And yeah. I
1: think the, the angler also says to him
0: at the beginning, "Don't look for it, find it. Don't search for it, come to it." Yeah. Um, and I think I don't know that I noticed that as a child reader, but I definitely noticed that as an adult reader. Is this that yeah. like that sense of? Trusting yourself and trusting that you and I guess it it goes back to what we were saying before about the, you know, ordinary objects having power that as a child putting a daisy chain over someone's hand will turn into like real handcuffs. But it's that sense that you have that power within you that you have this strong sense of kind of intuition or even magic within you that's going to, to guide you through
1: through life. I wonder is that why one am wondering why Bridget's name is is Bridget. You know that she has the resonances of the the two Bridgets that are in Irish yeah. tradition. You know the the mythological mm-hmm. goddess Bridget and then the saint of the same name who kind of they have been kind of, kind of merged into one kind of figure. I yeah, suppose to be interesting. You know uh, over the over the years, but like you know when I when I when people when people say to me Bridget like I I never know whether they I don't I don't know how to separate out the goddess from the saint or yeah. You know, it's so that to me they're kind of they're kind of the same maybe that's just me Maybe it might just be the way I think about it no but, but I that, think that, that could be why Bridget is Bridget because she has she has aspects of both worlds I think and intuition actually... situation naturally
0: yeah and it's just occurring to me that like Bridget the mythological figure is so strong actually that like the saint hasn't eclipsed her like
1: yeah like, actually
0: e- like
1: her because normally her... that does happen doesn't yeah, it like the saint yeah. overtakes yeah yeah
0: but she hasn't like that, that that that, mytholo- that god Bridget that's the, 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 the power goddess power of the goddess so... yeah strong that like christy christianity couldn't get rid of her
1: good for her and actually that brings me on to thinking about another thing as well that the names of two protagonists i mean we have yeah. bridget we've talked about her but like pitch Pidge, Pidge Pidge's real pitch's real name is, is is patrick joseph like his 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 initials are pj you know and so Pidge is a contraction of of pj and i mean so we have bridget we have patrick we have joseph you know they are you know I sort parental, you know, guiding, protective saints. Mm-hmm. I mean, St Joseph, the patron saint of the Holy Family, and Patrick, the saint of Ireland, and Bridget, mm-hmm. the saint of Ireland, you know, the, the two yeah. sort of guiding saints for the whole country, you know. And I, I love that that this, these are the names that, that Pataché gave to her, her characters. But it sort of leads me to thinking about another topic that I kind of wanted to discuss here, which was um, the criticism of... Uh, I have read somewhere, and I think it was in a review that <clears throat> that the book there's, there's a lack of danger in the plot so there have been criticisms leveled against the book you know primarily that there's no real menace or danger in it and that the children are basically drawn through the adventure and guided along every step but I could tell you when I was a child yeah. you know I didn't care about any that of that. And you know nonsense absolute nonsense yeah and as, as you're saying too it's not really about being drawn through or being you know guided it's as you said it's it's Pidge's intuition that he has to tune into you he's know and that himself. he has to yeah, yeah that he's doing it himself he, he might feel or look as though he's being led I mean I suppose they are they are guided and I suppose maybe they are protected at, at certain points or they're 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 fought for they're defended by by characters that turn out to be you know significant but they, they have to work things out on their own as well. And yeah. there's plenty there. I mean, we'll get into it now in a minute, but there's plenty of danger and peril in this book. Absolutely. We, we, talked, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the signpost at the beginning. Mm-hmm. and Pidge mm. meets the angler in chapter one that, and this is I think really significant so he's he's coming home from Galway with with the page that he's just found in the bookshop and he doesn't yet know how significant it is Um, but he's coming across a part of the road home that he knows well he's on his bicycle and he realises that the signpost is the wrong way around Um, this is in the same scene as when he's he sees these funny signs telling him to cycle on the road with his eyes shut and he thinks it's a student prank um, and he, but something tells him that this isn't just students playing a prank that the signpost is wrong and that it's 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 important it's it's magic and it's scary magic and he knows he has to fix it now he's been warned by the anchor of course to be to be aware so he's he's kind of he has his senses are, are, are tuned i guess but the idea that when he turns the signpost that the whole world spins around mm. with it you know that it's not this it's not this. the world is wrong the the world is twisted and the signpost is twisted with it and when he fixes it the whole world changes that that frightened. They're I think about that every time I see a
0: signpost. Like seriously, that uh, yeah. like or like because you often see signposts put like pointing in the wrong way, and like, yeah. that comes to me every time I see that. And yeah. it was it absolutely terrified me. Terrifying. Well yeah,
1: yeah. The idea that signpost—it looks ordinary, but it is mm-hmm. powerful magic trying to send him into Kyle Dove, the Blackwood that has an ancient ruin at its heart, and you know that if he if he hadn't spotted. It, and he'd gone down a road. He, he, If he just continued going home, he would have been going down the wrong road and he would have been led into, into mortal danger. You know, that that's no, just this is, like, sorry, this that's is just enough to scare
0: sparked, me. It sparked up <laughs> like loads of thoughts in my brain there. I'm going to take yeah. some, a little tangent for a second. But it's like, so that's making me think like the, the, the power of the signpost to change the world, the power of language, the power of words to override the, the the landscape or change the landscape. It reminds me of that, like kind of colonial mapping of of Ireland
1: like in translations like in in Bradfield's translations
0: and the way in which that that loses because it relates to stuff we were talking about earlier but like that that kind of colonial mapping of the world the anglicization of of place names like you lose a whole folklore and mythology there Um, you lose stories Um, but also the 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 way that like the Monks, so they preserved the Christian monk. The, they, they preserved the stories, but also changed the stories. And in writing down the stories, we lost that that older culture. Um, so language has a a kind of a negative power in the novel. And you know that that like Ulk Glass is imprisoned in like writing in in yeah. pages. In so pages. there's like okay. there's a negative power of language, but then there's also a really positive power of language in the novel, which is all of the like the lozenges and like the, the 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 drawings of all of the different signs and um, the sweets that you see throughout the, the novel you, you, like the, the signs and notes and notices are all You mean the way You mean the way the, the, way the book is put together like that yeah, you actually yeah. see them
1: drawn on the page in the story. Yeah, there's yeah, something yeah, really magical those. about that for me. Like, but yeah, yeah there's, you see
0: them. there's something about the ambivalent power of language and the power of language to change the world and eclipse the world. As opposed to, I mean, I guess a lot of what's happening in the novel with like Pidge and Bridget and, and the the people who help them is like, that's more an oral culture, like they're speaking to people. Um, and Breda, Fairfowl and Melody Moonlight use, like they use written language. They use those signs and the notice at Castle Durance.
1: I love that yeah Yeah. is that the one where it says uh yeah those who pedestre here do so on pain of measles yeah I love that you know (laughs) so they they come across across this castle on their on their journey that is kind of like and I love it too because you know they they isn't it they have to ring a gong or they have to hit a shield with a sword isn't it to Mm. to gain access to the castle and like when I when I later in my life when I was doing my medieval studies uh, you know I learned that that was a you know in there are romance you know kind of romance stories or romance tales where to bang a shield or to bang a gong, you know. To you come across a, a tree that has a gong hanging from it, and there's a there's a sword or there's something that to, to hit it with. And if you if you hit the gong with this sword, you summon up you summon up a knight or you summon up an enemy or you summon up uh, you know something to fight you know so anyone who would be familiar with that trope knows that you don't you don't bang random gongs or bang random shields swords because that never leads to a good place (laughs) um but uh, but i love that sign outside of castle durance uh the actual phrasing is it's not it's that i think people who ped oh people who pedestre here do so on pain of measles and i think you know when you have when you have books as a child and, and you can write on them like this belongs to me do not touch hands off well my 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 version of that was all those who pedestal here do so on pain of measles that was what i used to put on everything i owned you know to Brilliant. mark it off as mine um yeah, yeah you're using, using you, you were using the <laughs> the scary power of the, the scary word <laughs> <laughs> it's the written word but you're right though like the, the the book does reproduce the little actual sign you mm. see it's the little picture uh in yeah the book. yeah and same with the with the last the sweets that bridget has given as a as a present by booty and patsy and we don't know what for you know sweets for swapping day and they've no idea when swapping day is or what of what it actually means until later in the story when they come across a fair there's a swapping day and they realize that that the the lozenges are there to help them and they you know and you see and each individual is drawn in the book yeah the message is written on it and you see it yeah it's really yeah but yeah there's it. something
0: something going on there with the written with the written word but anyway and yeah so yeah back to that like idea of there's no danger in the novel they're like yeah there absolutely is and, and and there's danger in the written word. that's one of the places that like you can't trust what you read necessarily yeah you can't trust but what maybe. you see you can't trust maybe. your. you can't trust what you see but you can trust your senses you can trust because Pidge knows like he knows deep inside that like there's something wrong with that sign there's something wrong with
1: the castle, it's, fine it's been, the, the, the castle, like the hotel yeah. California, isn't it? You know, they, they go in and they, they meet the beautiful hostess and everything else, but you know, you can sign in, but you can never leave, type of thing. You know, yeah. they have to break the magic to, to get out of it. But um, but yeah, there's there's some bits of the book are are pure flesh creeping, like there's you know, it's 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 real visceral even though even the i suppose that the nature of what the morrigan wants to do you know that she she wants to reactivate her own last magic by reclaiming a drop of her own blood which had been Mm -hmm. spilled you know many centuries before and the the very ickiness of that made my skin just sort of pimple into goose flesh when i was a kid you know and it just it's a very visceral you know threat a very visceral way of bringing about her magic i guess again you know um and so, I mean, there mightn't be mad. There might be danger as you'd find in in modern kids' books, maybe like you know. But there's certainly creeping menace and the sort of intrigue that keeps you pinned to the page, you know. And there, there's certainly fear. I mean, like I remember, I think in the review I read, there was the particular criticism was that the hounds that are pursuing Page and Bridget across the countryside, they can't actually chase the children unless the children are running. You know, as in if the if the hounds don't see the kids running, they can't chase them. So Pidge and Bridger are constantly looking behind them to check and see if they can't see the hounds then they run. And if they see the hounds then they stop running. So for a lot of the book, they're kind of walking and the hounds are walking behind them. But it's still the threat is always there like that. The fear would overcome them and they would start to run. You know, the, the animal instinct to escape would overcome them and they would start to run. And then the, and then the hunt would truly begin. That 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 threat is constantly sort of hanging over them. And there's one, there's one part of the book where they they emerge, they emerge from I don't know where I forget where it is, but from the, they kind of come back into their own world or whatever, and they emerge among the hounds, you know, and unexpectedly the hounds are all around them, and they know they can't run, but they have to fight the urge not to yeah. run, like so it's like the that's the threat is always there, yeah, it's a yeah. tangible fear,
0: yeah. I don't know who this reviewer was, but they're they're wrong in all. I, I will countenance <laughs> no criticism of this book. But like, if there's like, there's danger on in so many different ways. There's that that real physical danger of like the hounds like chasing them if they run, and then there's also these like heartbreaking moments. Like I think as I was trying to find it in the novel just there, and I can't. Uh, I thought I'd marked it, but as like the Morrigan and Melody and Breeder like run, like they're they're moving through the countryside, and they pass a house where this old couple oh like, yes do you remember that yes the old couple are sitting and they've had this like beautiful uh relationship that for all of their life. lives yeah and yeah. then like they just throw some kind of spite into the into the household and the, the couple start fighting in this really awful way and then you also in your notes pointed to like you know the, the sergeant and
1: bank manager yeah Who who could have been friends but It's just, it's just a tiny little scene and I can't remember the actual details of it, but it's just purely for, for nothing other than to cause a tiny bit of evil in the world. Mm. You know, the Morrigan decides she's going to put a, put a, put a jealousy or put a, put a, an unhappiness between the sergeant and the bank manager who who meet at one point in the book who could have been best friends if yeah. they had been allowed to but the evil stops them and makes them fall out makes them makes them argue and that means that their friendship never happens but it's that, that scene you're talking about when they're, they're passing by the house and they fling this random bit of evil out yeah. into the house and it disturbs the peace and harmony of this old couple even as a kid that broke my heart yeah, Actually, no, I it's, being, chilling. Like, so, it's so sad that people who could have had their whole life and uh, as and the scene is so beautiful it talks about them being together mm-hmm. in the comfort and warmth of their sitting room and their children have grown up and gone and yeah. they're talking they're reminiscing about their happy life and about their lovely children that they've raised together and how how content they are but from that moment on their their content their happiness together is destroyed gone. purely yeah, because. That's like the Morgan wants to have a bit of
0: fun for yeah. and for no like and that was the thing as well i think it's like for no reason like just no reason
1: purely push. random like 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 the horror that happens in the world yeah not there's yeah. never a reason for it yeah you know um
0: and so it's I, like well,
1: that it, reviewer <laughs> I don't know what to say about that reviewer. And do you remember when when the dad when Pigeon and Bridget's dad, oh yeah. back in the fair and he brings back the mare, we mentioned it slightly earlier, he brings back a horse that has mm. um, horrible magic in it, you know, not it wasn't the horse's fault, you know, it just and it all becomes it all works out. Yes. But like when Pidge uses the scrying glass that he was given by Booty and Patsy, and he sees the fog coming out of the mouth of the horse, mm. like because the fog is there to sort of spy on them. So he you can't see it unless you're using the scrying glass that that Pidge that Booty and Patsy have given him. Um, so if the pit knows there's something wrong with this horse but on the surface it looks fine but underneath he knows something is not right and that bit when he sees the fog coming out of the mouth of the horse through its grind glass it frightened the japers out of me as a kid it was so scary and how their dad has changed yeah you know he, he comes back from the fair with this with this this mare and he is cold and hard and cruel when before that he was totally loving and normal and and their dog doesn't Know how to cope with it, like the dog doesn't know why why the dad is you know he he knows the dad has changed, you know, and that that was so scary. Like yeah, I
0: because
1: it's like it's fun. like like to me now as
0: I suppose as an adult reading it, I'm looking at that and I'm like that's a, he. It's like this brilliant metaphor for addiction. Like he's just that the father has just become addicted by the mayor and he can't see his children and he can't yeah. see anything else and all he can think about is the mayor and yeah. it's just terrifying
1: yeah yeah true you know um like i think Palachet understood what made things scary for a child yeah, reader like yeah. you don't have to have monsters and battles and blood and gore you can have those things but you don't have to have them i think putting a scene on the page where your kind hearted dad turns cold without warning mm-hmm. is so much more frightening and and it, and it goes to your bones you know it's 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 pure i i it's it's not it's horrible, you know, it's it's, just, still, it's still, not just, it just for a child
0: me. as well. It's like that's still like I, when I read this novel, every time I read this novel, when I read this novel again for the podcast, it's like those those scenes still give me chills. OK, so then there's one point I'd also want to make about. The kind of. The kind of people that Pidge and Bridget meet along the way and the kind of. The the type of people who are magical in in the book. And it's something that I think it, it's shared by other books that I absolutely love, including Sinead's The Time Tider. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like so the people that they meet, the gods and the goddesses in disguise are like, Sinead, I think you mentioned that like Booty and Patsy could be like homeless people and yeah, like it's all people who are living who are like at the edges of society. Um, those
1: and edge the, people are the, the people, yeah. magical people and the um, lady they meet uh, at the fair you know the, the swapping day the fair yeah. the lady who who uh, has the has the ducks or has the geese mm-hmm. i forget there's a name on her and i can't remember what, she, what she's called but they like she she comes across as a lady who might not be might might have lost her senses or might be a little bit you know uh at a, at a you know at a yeah at a loose end mentally, I I can't think of the way to put it, you know. But the children are compassionate and they show her kindness and they show her they show her such acceptance, you know. And and uh, and they she helps them and she ends mm-hmm. up being really significant. I want to I I don't yeah. spoil for anybody who's not read the book, but she and her and her her poultry become uh, so important at the end of the story, um. You know, and again it shows that we were talked a bit about how the children's every you know countering that the idea we mentioned about the how the the Morrigan throws out these tiny evils everywhere she goes you know and and does these terribly terribly t- t- to the morning they're meaningless moments of, of horror but to the people they land on they are yeah. lifelong you know uh, countering that in the story the children ha- show kindness you know uh, even every tiny kindness they show comes around and and, and uh, ends up being so important at the end of the story we kind of mentioned a bit earlier that um uh, bridget was kind she sees a worm uh in the sun you know and she she moves this she moves the, the worm into the into the shade you know so that she, the worm doesn't die and that tiny act of kindness is enough to put a spanner in the morrigan's plan at one point um mm-hmm. for complicated reasons uh that we won't maybe get into for those who haven't read the book but that tiny that tiny act of kindness is enough to sort of you know put put a kibosh put the kibosh on the morrigan's plan it doesn't stop her completely but it, it does have a profound effect on, on her ability to to do to do her evil um you know, but also the kindness they show and um, uh, to to this lady with her her flock of geese ends up being really significant. Um, and the scene with 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 Bridget uh, when when they meet the seven mains, you know they they mm, went. I love that scene so they went, much. They go to a field, yeah, with with seven seven lumps in the in the ground. Um, heads. and uh, they turn out to be the heads of the seven mains. And seven mains were the sons of Queen Maeve and, and her husband Alil um and they all died in battle and you know and Bridget is is so kind to them. She it's actually really sweet and you know um do you want to read from it or will we read from it? Oh, yeah I do you know what I have, you have I, it marked?
0: Ha- I actually have it marked. Um, yeah if I could um, find it among but Bridget is, ones so, ones, is but... so is so
1: so kind to them and so sweet and they uh they end up becoming uh, that, that 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 particular that particular act of kindness um, and just generosity of spirit ends up having a massive impact on the end of the uh, of the end of the story. And uh, I think that's uh, what the book is like. It's a book about compassion. Here, it's page 153, 152, 153. Yeah. So from page 152. So the kids are in a field and they see seven, seven bumps on the ground. Um, and then and then something happened to the seven bumps on the ground. This is after, after after Bridget plays from her Penny Whistle. So something happened to the seven bumps on the ground. And in their places were seven heads, men, all young, all with long hair and bright eyes. And each one wore a necklace of twisted gold, a little dulled. Bridget dropped to her knees and said, hello. Pidge knelt down and asked, who are you? I am Main Mingor, the gently dutiful, said the first one. And I am Main Morgor, the very dutiful, said the second. I am Main Ando, the quick. I am Main Mo Epert, the talker. I am Main Myhramail, like my mother. I am Main ahrmile like my father. And I am Main Milsgahach, the honey worded, said the last. And we are the seven sons of Maeve and Alil, concluded the one named the talker. Oh, I've heard of Queen Maeve, Pitch said with delight. So have I, Bridget said quickly. She was our fierce, wild, courageous, boastful, proud, laughing, loving mother. And she and we loved her and she loved us. Sometimes she was a bit mad, said Main ahrmile reminding them. I won't deny it, said Maynard Mile, but she smelled lovely. Britta was looking at them critically. You've all got dirty faces and your hair is all entangled, she said. All the faces looked at each other and smiled. She sounds just like our mammy, the Queen. Many a time she hammered us when we were small for the same fault and said not to be walking around as if we were minding pigs and disgracing her, but to try and look like the sons of a Queen, or she'd skin us said Maine Mingor, the gently dutiful, and other times she said that we were her own lovely boys, and she loved us for personal reasons. So she did, said Maine (laughs) Milskahook, the honey-worded, and his voice was indeed as sweet as honey. Would you like me to wash you and comb your hair, Bridget asked. That would be the right thing to do, plain enough, said Maine Ando, the quick. And Bridget goes on to use her hanky, you know. To she kind of spits yeah. out her hanky and wipes like their all faces. our mammies did, <laughs> like all mammies do, and scrubs faces and scrubs the dirt off. And, like the, and I've the, done to my own son, the, even though yeah, I hated it so much. Exactly. Yeah. And she combs um, out their hair, and, and and they love it, and they think it's so sweet. And then they give them a seed. Each of them ha- has a seed in their mouth, and uh, Pidge takes the seeds, and they become significant at the end. And they keep the hair that they that they ca- that catches in the comb when they comb their heads. Uh, of the of the of the seven mains and that becomes significant at the end all these tiny details just all end up being being relevant and being important from their mouth like oral culture versus
0: written culture there you go we better start talking about the end otherwise i think this podcast is going to be two hours long
1: yes okay sorry apologies yes uh yes Uh, well i I just think the book is, is is so well structured and i think it really does bear you know, thinking about how how much work Aloysia put into this story, you can really tell, especially at the end when everything, I suppose, starts yeah, to get comes a together. Bit everything comes together, everything together. Yeah, everything knits together so so well. Yeah, and all the, yeah all the seemingly innocuous things that turn out to be so vital to the plot. Um, you know, so even the bow and arrow that uh yeah, that Bridget gets given as a gift by by uh, the Smith at the start of the story, it, you know. It is, I could see I don't want to give away too many spoilers either. No. but it becomes, it becomes vital to the final battle in the book. Um, but it's and... such a satisfying
0: it's such a satisfying ending because yes, like so much is revealed like who characters yeah even the old
1: anchor the old anger of the book yeah. who warned pitch to be on his guard yeah everyone really everyone is significant
0: everything is significant every action yeah. is significant and they, it all like coalesces in yeah these these and every character has Like, I know we won't say too much about it, but do you want to like, because every character that we've encountered in the novel also plays a part in the ending, even like someone like
1: Mossy Flynn, who renders the... Yeah. Went to the glass the glass house to I was I was more not to, and not to give away the absolute details of what Mossy Flynn does and I'm annoyed because <laughs> I really want because I love Mossy Flynn. yeah Mossy Flynn yeah, is a, great character. a human character who is hilarious uh on un- on un- probably unwittingly hilarious like mm-hmm. he's he's uh, he's a he's a man who owns a glass house yeah owns a, owns a glass house in his garden that he could sort of rents to uh these three women um who we know to be the morrigan but he, who just look like three artists i think he thinks they're three artists from england you know yeah. who, who, are, who arrive on their harley davidson motorbikes the middle of the night and he uh they're looking for a place to stay so he gives them his glass house and uh he's trying to charm them trying to woo them he tries to bring them over dinner tries to bring them over to breakfast tries to get them to talk to him you know and they're they, they show him nothing but complete di- well i suppose they toy with his affections don't they like one yeah. moment they're charming and the next moment they're completely uh completely rude and horrible but none of it um, phases him which is brilliant it, like, he just yeah, yeah he's, he's totally like he just oblivious
0: to, yes, he's oblivious he's exactly. oblivious to their like yeah. spice which i love yes, about him. yes yeah. yes
1: I, and that's probably why he's so funny but there's probably to me the most the most satisfying and or the most mm-hmm. satisfying uh, <laughs> conclusion to a tale one of the one of the most horrible i suppose uh scenes in the whole book is the morrigan uses her magic to make a to make a a maze out of her fingerprint I know it sounds insane but read the book and you'll you'll see what I mean and Pidge and Bridget are they get trapped in it and it's the most horrifically visceral disgusting yeah. you can you, oh it's just gross but it's brilliant um but Mossy Flynn brings this spell to an end in the most innocuous way possible just by being Mossy and yeah, I absolutely yeah. <laughs> love it like so all the way through you have Massey just being this incidental kind of bumbling human character who's there for a bit of fun like you know he's kind of like the comic relief but at the end it's Massey Flynn. <laughs> Who mm-hmm. by accident, because <laughs> yeah, in so, anyone else's who, hands, yeah. they
0: would just like leave Mossy Flynn to be the comic relief, but like yeah, in yeah, in yeah, Kat's genius hands, he like he becomes formed like... de- or he
1: becomes instrumental to the whole to yeah. new of the plot, yeah, which is incredible. Um, and I, I just love as well, there's there was this there was a bit that always struck me, even as a child reader, that you know, the the railings around yeah. air square, you know. The, 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 the spears that had been used in the battle that had just happened in the in, in fairy become like this, the railings around air square you know and just like to me like it's like a psychedelic merging of the two worlds that the kids kind of they come from they kind of get the kind of kind of flow from this battle scene in Tirnanog back to Thump and they land back in air square in, in, in Galway of the mid 80s you know uh, or the 70s I suppose whenever the book was actually set you know, and um, it's just it's just an, an incredible mel- melding of the two worlds. But oh, yeah. every single thing that happens in the book, from meeting Pudney and Huila, that becomes that's really vital to the end. Um, uh, to the point where um, the Morrigan is in the habit of 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 making things small, like kind of shrinking things down and sticking them on her bracelet. You know, like she has a kind of a charm bracelet around her wrist that she kind of you know imprisons people on. You know, and she makes a fatal mistake, and that fatal mistake on her bracelet comes back to haunter and is is important at the very very end as well um so you can truly see the work that went into structuring this novel and how every tiny detail plays its part and there's there is when you're reading the book you know be be alert and soak up all the details that are in it because they all come around again i think it's a book that kind of it it kind of rewards yeah i think that's probably
0: why both of us have like continued to read and reread and reread and reread and will for probably the rest of our lives and probably basically what we're saying to you dear listeners is if you haven't already read the hands of the morrigan it is your next read read it yesterday <laughs> it is and you will exactly. thank us you I, we were waiting for all of the letters to come through our post boxes and the emails <laughs> to come flooding into our inboxes and the dms thank you thank you thank you for bringing
1: the hand of the morgan into my life, you are welcome. In advance, you are welcome. Yes, um, certainly it has it has profoundly shaped me as a person uh, and also as a as a as a creator if I'm allowed to use that word. Um, I definitely see the threads that were first started to be woven when I read this book, and then how they've affected everything that I've that I've done, but particularly my my forthcoming book, uh, the silver road, owes a lot to the hands of the that without without the hands of the morgan I, it wouldn't exist at all and um, i probably wouldn't even be here uh i'd probably be working in a bank instead um or something you know i wouldn't be a creator <laughs> without this book so so i'm sorry about that everyone uh you, you're stuck with me because pat Lachey wrote a brilliant book but sometimes i am sad that i never got to tell her how important she was to i me know i would was... love
0: to know more about who she was as a person yeah i really want either to write her biography or have someone write her biography. I just want to like, I want to know her. I want to know the the person and the brain from which this amazing book came from.
1: Yeah. Yes, but certainly it's a it's a testament to her hard work, uh, but also to her immense and unique and irreplaceable talent. Uh, It truly is the most Irish of books, but also the most amazing of stories. Uh, Yeah. And I'm delighted to have got to talk to you, talk about Me it with you. This has too been amazing Me too. But uh, I guess that's it for this week. Um, but we are going to be back very soon, and we have some fantastic guests. Can't wait to share with you who we have coming up. Um, and this is going to be a great season. So strap in and get ready. We're, we've plenty to talk about, loads of books to discover. Um, and yeah, I hope, we, I hope that you will come back and join us again. Uh, next time for our next episode of story shaped but for today we shall bid you all slongfall fall from from us Slongfall fall for me Slongfall from us and from from Pidge and Bridget and uh, Mossy Flynn <laughs> we all say we all say good luck <laughs> rest easy rest easy <laughs> exactly <laughs> you have been listening to story shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart Follow us on Twitter at StoryShapedPod and don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Beths. <coughs>